You've trained for a few Ironmans, and I know that you have. I think the canals is like your main training path, hasn't it been? For the, my adult life, it's been a almost a daily uh, ritual for me to get out and and bike or jog or walk on the canals. What, what, what are the chances that I could lure you into a game of truth or dare? <laughs> it sounds dangerous. Has the mayor ever, after an exhausting workout, maybe dipped his toe or more <laughs> into the canal? We were speaking hypothetically, right? But Purely hypothetically. Hypothetically, if there had been hot mornings where I maybe have overexerted myself yes. on the canal, yes, I think you, you could you could reasonably assume that toes and ankle ankles and shoulders and heads and knees and so <laughs> hypothetically the whole body. Yeah, and hypothetically, it's quite a refreshing experience. <laughs> Get the degrees and just remember this, please. I say it's always cool in Mesa. In the full version of our Always Cool theme song, there's a line that goes, If you say Venice makes you wistful, well, we've got canals by the fistful. And it's true. Miles and miles of canals that deliver water to every reach of the city. They also provide a place to walk, bike, and enjoy our Arizona sunsets. But the story of how the canals came to be is an epic and sacred one. Season three, episode six, we're still here. The story of Mesa's canal builders. It's always cool in Mesa. This episode is brought to you by Visit Mesa. Folks, go to visitmesa.com passes and learn about their Adventure Explorer Passport. It's a partnership between Visit Mesa and Lacey Kane's social media sensation, Wild Joy, a collection of hikes, drives, and experiences, the quintessential guide to finding wild joy in Mesa's backyard. When you sign up for the passport, you start earning points and prizes. Best of all, it connects you to the place we all call home. The Adventure Explorer Passport at visitmesa.com slash passes. Bucket list fun, all at your fingertips. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, and Scream for your life! King Kong. The American Film Institute says it's one of the 50 best American movies ever made. Released five years after the first talkie, it's bursting with memorable sound. The music? King Kong's roar, and Fay Ray's scream. I know, what does King Kong and Fay Ray have to do with Mesa, Arizona's patchwork of canals? Well, it turns out that Fay Ray is the granddaughter of Daniel Webster Jones, the first Mormon pioneer who came to the Mesa area and repurposed the ancient Hohokam canals. It's a cool piece of trivia that's part of a much cooler story. Living as we do today with our air-conditioned homes, cars, swimming pools, and thoroughly stocked grocery stores, we look back at the Salt River settlers of 1877 with a bit of awe. It's hard to imagine their grit, determination, and ingenuity. On the other hand, this had all been done before. A thousand years ago, there were hundreds of thousands of people living here. It was a very sophisticated commercial environment, agrarian environment. 
that thrived. That's Simon Tepene Adlam, the director of the Arizona Natural History Museum. He reminds us that the first white settlers to the Salt River Valley were building on a successful template set by the ancients. And the key feature of that template? The canal system here was one of the largest in the world. Some have suggested the canals could easily be an eighth wonder of the world. Shane Anton is a descendant of those early canal builders. By blood and by trade, he's a good one to give us perspective. Shane, you have a, a, an amazing job description working for the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community. I, I've t- tell us what that is. Uh, my job title is Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. Now with you know so much building and development and things going on, there's always going to be discoveries of, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, deceased relatives. So mm-hmm. those are very much what we try to protect. Part of our belief is that living is one part of life, dying is another, and in the afterlife there's a journey that exists. And so disturbing your physical remains is... is upsetting Mm. and can hinder that journey so we always want to get them back and uh, reinter them with uh, respect and dignity. There's also another important part of Shane's job. We also try to correct what may be fable. That is exactly the mission that you're on here on this podcast today. We we want your perspectives on this fascinating you know, a canal system that we have. Give me like a, a short, you know, Wikipedia article on, on the, the where these canals originally came from. Oh, they were uh, built by our, our ancestors. And so maybe a, a good dive into that as part of correcting the record is that our first contact was with the Spanish. They had come to us as a people and asked us a bunch of questions. We answered them in our language. Apimach means I don't know, I don't understand. But they thought we were answering their question about who we were. Mm. So that became Pima. Oh, Apimach. Oh, wow. But amongst ourselves, we call each other Autum. It just means the people. Yeah. I've heard you describe a similar situation. The the term Hohokam is one that we've heard a lot, you know, right. he, 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 growing up in Mesa. But that's really a, a, a mistake, isn't it? And it's a misnomer. So in that same ethnographic work, um, the ethnographer says, well, who built these canals? Who built these buildings? Who built, you know, what you have here? And we refer to our deceased as Hugum. Hugum. So they, in turn, could transliterated that, mm-hmm. didn't get it quite right, and came up with Hohokam. Yeah, But also, they assumed we were talking about a different group of people, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a different group of people. It was just our deceased. And so we're, we're mispronouncing Huhugum, and we're also misunderstanding that, no, these the, the indigenous people that are here now are the direct descendants of the people that created those canals. Right. It's just a continuation. So you never went anywhere. Never went anywhere. <laughs> Still here. You can see how that might be a bit grating. If you were an Egyptian and everyone said, those pyramids are incredible. Too bad all the Egyptians are gone. You'd naturally raise your hand and say, not true. We're still here. And we're proud of what our ancestors accomplished. When the settlers arrived, were, were the Otham people that were actively living in the area, were they using the canals for agriculture themselves? Yes, they were using the river. Yes, they very much were. Historian Jared Smith says the record is clear on that. The Akmil Odom or the Gila River Pima and uh, the Maricopa next door, the Peeposh, they were both using irrigation agriculture, and so they were, they were very adept. 
Jones's company arrived on the banks of the Salt River in March of 1877 and camped on the south side. A mile to the south, the land rose sharply to the mesa, a Spanish word meaning table. Jones chose to stay close to the water. To get seed planted in time, Jones knew they were going to need a lot of help. They would actually work with some of the nearby Native American folks, who we often know as the Pima today. Uh, they would trade some of the land for their help in, in you know, digging the canals, clearing the farmland, leveling the farmland, all that. Occasional raiding by the Apache tribe was another challenge. Again, Shane Anton. A lot of the settlers in the area relied on, uh, relied on Otham soldiers or Otham companies, okay. or had a militia, to protect them from the raids. With Otham help, Jones and his company made quick progress. But then trouble began to brew. The Lehigh colony, uh, it had a lot of challenges. Uh, a lot of it was because, you know, Daniel Webster Jones, a very strong-headed personality kind of guy. And Jones was strong-headed on this issue, that the Otham people should live among them. This upset some of the settlers, but Jones wouldn't back down. A good chunk of the early Lehigh group would break off mm -hmm. to found what's now St. David down, you know, mm -hmm. near Benson. When Jones agreed to Brigham Young's invitation to settle in the Salt River Valley, he had just one request, that the families assigned to join him would be so large and poor that they couldn't afford to leave. It turned out the poverty wasn't the tether Jones thought it might be. Jones's invitation to the Otham seemed like an unforced error to many, but anyone who knew Jones also knew he was an intensely loyal person. 25 years earlier, after suffering an accidental gunshot wound, Mormon settlers nursed Jones back to health. Impressed by their kindness, he took on their religion. Years later, when Mormon handcart pioneers were trapped in snow at the South Pass in modern-day Wyoming, Brigham Young called for volunteers to rescue them. It seemed only right he should return to the kindness shown him years before. But after the pioneers had been rescued, Jones volunteered to stay behind at the pass through the winter to protect the belongings the handcart companies were forced to leave behind. The hardships that followed were unimaginable. And his survival was owed in no small part to the kindness of nearby Indians. Remembering their generosity, he was determined to treat the Otham as friends. Half its original size, the little company on the Salt River and their native friends pressed on. One thing that they realized with the old canals was that they were going to have to relocate the head of the canal, which is where the canal takes water from the salt. It was a, it was a tough go. Lehigh resident, gentleman farmer, and Mesa City Council member Mark Freeman explains what that work was like. During dry periods, when it was less water, they had to come in and dig a canal and extend it out into the river. So in times when there's water actually flowing down the Salt River, they could capture that water and bring it into wherever they wanted to deliver that water. What could go wrong? They hit some really sandy areas, so the water would come along the ditch and it would disappear in the ground because it was so sandy. So they brought silt in by horses and mules and silted the ditch, creating a clay barrier so the water would stay where it's at so they could get through the sandy areas. But Jared Smith says sandy areas weren't their only foal. Gophers undermining 
um, mm-hmm. you know, the critters that would that would go through the sides of these dirt lined ditches and, and create actual breaches. And aside from digging and maintaining canals, there was the whole matter of making money. A lot of uh, the, the farmhands would go and work for other operations during harvest time. So uh, they, they got income in many different ways, and including selling their crops once they were able to start. So what were some of the early crops that they, they grew in that environment? Uh, alfalfa was a big one. Mm-hmm. Grapes actually were quite big. I heard a rumor that these uh, teetotaling Mormon pioneers might have uh, been good at uh, providing wine grapes. That's right. Daniel Webster Jones, uh, he was he was actually very, very knowledgeable about wine grapes. He brought a, a many different variety. Mm. So they made wine, and that was actually a form of cash crop. Their community went by more names than Prince. Utahville. Fort Utah and Jonesville. Five years in the future, they became the town formerly known as Jonesville, or Lehigh. In the new year of 1878, a new group of Mormon settlers arrived. Jones invited them to stay. However, this new group had their eye on the mesa. But the difficulty was obvious. How do you get water up to the mesa? You can see the answer in one of our city parks. I went there with Mark Freeman. This park of the canals is one of my favorite parks in in Mesa. We are literally on the edge of the Mesa, and the topography of this park is amazing because we're looking at all kinds of little gullies, but these aren't, you know, just rolling gullies. What, What are they? So these gullies, or actually canals, were dug by the Hohokam, bringing water up here in the Indian communities, these villages, they dug these ditches by hand, literally by hand. They didn't use horse or anything and worked extremely hard to bring water up here to the park of the canals. So the ancients had already done it. But how exactly? How do, how do you get water from the Salt River up on top of the mesa? When you build these canals, you have to, you have to put the head of the canal far, far, you know, miles up the river. Mm. Far enough upriver that the water is actually flowing down to the mesa even though it may not look like it. And the mother of all the canals that brought water to the mesa had been named by explorers who marveled at the achievement. The Montezuma Ditch. Mm -hmm. Um, People tended to think it was somebody like the Aztecs, you know, some empire like that that had opened up these ditches. Well, it was certainly an empire. Yes, it was. The Huhugam Empire. The Mormons followed the slope of the Montezuma Ditch down to the river, only to find that years of flooding had left it disconnected from the salt, 20 to 25 feet in the air. But rather than end their quest there... They went up river and they checked it out, and they actually found a spot that looked better. To be sure they had the right spot, they sought the help of a professional surveyor. They went down to a surveyor in Phoenix named Hancock, and this was a guy who was, you know, well-experienced. At, at surveying in this region, and, uh, uh, and Hancock, you know, was very frank with them. It would be near impossible, not worth the effort, he told them. They returned to the spot and did their own surveying. More convinced than ever, they persuaded Hancock to come and confirm their findings. He made a few adjustments, but basically what they had laid out was the right idea. To, to me, it kind of speaks to the foresight that these settlers had, because to, to an expert like Mr. Hancock coming in and saying, no, that, that's too big a task. But, but these settlers said, no, you don't understand. We're building the footprint of what's going to be a major city. 
The next day they began digging at a location about three miles south of the current Granite Reef Dam. But at some point they must have wondered if Hancock was right. Was it worth it? With nothing but hand tools, it was tough going through the Caliche Rock. But after nine months, water began to arrive at the new Mesa town site. So when, when we're driving through Mesa and we see a canal, what's the likelihood that that, that path is the, the same route that uh, has been used for thousands of years? Oh, that, that percentage is, uh, I'd say, probably high 90s. <laughs> really? Okay. It's, it's a pretty good one. Basically, the engineering prowess of the Hocom was, was strong. The ancient Montezuma Ditch, once revived and improved, continues to be the mother of all canals today. It delivers water to almost 90% of Mesa, as well as Tempe, and goes even into Chandler. Our forebears realized that, gosh, you know, if we just follow the existing canal systems, we can get water to the Mesa and everybody else, and that's how we flourish today. So what sparked Mark Freeman's interest in all of this? Charles Chrisman is one of the founders of Mesa, and he happens to be my great-great-grandfather. Again, Jared Smith. Charles Chrisman was phenomenal. I mean, this guy was tough as nails, had been, I think, all the way from California, San Bernardino area, up to Idaho, and, and back and forth. The names in this second company reads like a who's who of Pioneer Mesa. Crisman, Pomeroy, Robeson. Serine, McDonald, folks that you almost would call them professional settlers. The Mesa company had managed to water the Mesa. But redigging the ancient canals was only part of a larger challenge. The first big flood was in 1891. Lehigh lost a lot of buildings because the floodwaters actually washed through Lehigh. The flood water would go through the canals and flood farmland that was miles away from the wow. river itself. But floods were only half the problem. In the early 1890s, basically, it started a massive drought in the area. And then in 1905, they had another massive flood. The cycle of drought and flood had vexed the Otham for centuries. But the end of the 19th century offered a couple of powerful innovations. After the flood of 91, Dr. A.J. Chandler, who later founded the city of Chandler, came to visit the Mesa city leaders. He made a proposal that he would consolidate the entire Southern Canal system. The Mesa Canal Company agreed. And so he brought in a gigantic dredger and dredged out what was called the South, it oh, became known I, as the South Canal, I think right? I've seen pictures of this. That was a big deal, wasn't it? Right. Such a big deal that hordes of visitors came every day to watch the dredger do its work. The canals were deepened, strengthened, and unified. But the most important innovation was coming, Roosevelt Dam. The highest masonry dam in the world at the time, it took six years to build and was dedicated on March 18, 1911. People were fully aware that, of how big a deal this was, and the line of cars, you know, it was like a highway um, mm -hmm. heading, heading up on the Apache Trail. Yeah. Right. So which included President Roosevelt, former President Roosevelt, going up to dedicate the dam named after him. Did he like literally, you know, crank open some gates or did he smash a bottle of, uh, you know, Mesa Mormon wine on the on the pillar or what what was involved there? They, you know, they had a whole speakers area set up with with Roosevelt um, and, and they crowded the top with hundreds or thousands of people. Roosevelt Dam freed the valley from the cycle of flood and drought for good. 
Today, well-maintained canals wind through Mesa and beyond. It is the very life force that has allowed the valley to become what it is today. And it all began with the departed ones, the Huhugam, those ancient masters who laid the template. Understanding the story a little better now, it makes Shane Anton's job of correcting the record and caring for his ancestors' remains seem all the more important. So when you, you drive by the canals in Mesa, do you put your hand over your heart or salute or uh, shed a tear? Yeah, well, yeah, I actually live in Mesa. I live in Mesa now. And so sometimes when I do my walks, I walk on the canal. I think you probably have deeper thoughts you know, on, on your walks on the canal than I do. What, 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 where does your mind go when you're on the canal? The, the thing I marvel at, too, just like anybody else, is to build these things, this network of canals that are miles and miles long and with no modern machinery, nothing to do. It was all group-oriented, and it had to be done. Um, to be successful, everybody had to get along. And it, there was no, there's no, nothing in our history that says there was acrimony or that people were rebellious or toward it. And so that ability in itself is the foundation of the city. So to me, Mesa grew up around the Otham Canals. Yeah. Mesa grew up around the Otham Canals. Truer words were never spoken. Over three seasons of this podcast, I've got to do a lot of cool stuff. Now I can add this to the list. Walking the canals at sunset with a descendant of the original builders. Shane will proudly tell you, we didn't go anywhere. We're still here. Man, isn't that a beautiful sunset? That's really beautiful. If you want to learn more about the canals and how Mesa became an agricultural powerhouse, order Jared Smith's excellent book, Making Water Flow Uphill. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend.